Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1693, the young German barber surgeon Johann Peter Uttinger joined a slave trading venture for the second time. In the employ of the Brandenburg African Company, Uttinger sailed with his shipmates from Europe to the African coast. There they procured their captive human cargo, took the Middle Passage to the West Indies, and exchanged their enslaved people in the colonies for a variety of goods. Along the way, Uttinger encountered a mix of European, African, and colonial peoples who traded, or were traded, across borders, often regardless of nationality. We know about Uttinger's involvement because he kept a journal. His two stints aboard slave trading vessels were part of a 14-year period as a journeyman in Europe and the Atlantic world, a life he recorded on scraps of paper that he eventually fashioned into a proper diary. Now, if you're like me, you may not have realized that German-speaking peoples had such extensive involvement in the slave trade. In fact, Uttinger's voyage marked the high point of German participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And through his words, we can see how that trade shaped lives far beyond the ocean's borders. It is a portrait of an early modern world becoming modern. On today's show, I talk with Dr. Craig Koslowski and Dr. Roberto Staug, the two historians who discovered Uttinger's long-forgotten journal buried in the Berlin archives. Koslowski, who is professor of history in Germanic languages and literatures at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and Thaug, who is professor of early modern history at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, are the co-editors and translators of A German Barber Surgeon in the Atlantic Slave Trade, the 17th century journal of Johann Peter Uttinger, just published by the University of Virginia Press. This is part one of a two-part series about Uttinger's life and journal. On today's episode, we explore Uttinger's European and Atlantic worlds and his 1693 slave trading voyage. In two weeks, we'll talk about the journal as an artifact, one that has a remarkable history in its own right, and how Koslovsky and Staug stumbled across it. Now, before we get started, our friends at UVA Press are offering a 40% discount on this published edition of Uttinger's journal. If you'd like your own copy, check out the show notes for this episode at the new home for our podcast, georgewashingtonpodcast.com. There you'll find a discount code you can use at the UVA Press website. And with that, let's reconstruct the life of a German barber surgeon in the Atlantic slave trade with Craig Koslovsky and Roberto Saug. Who was Johann Peter Uttinger? And Craig, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you bat lead off for us? Johann Peter Uttinger was born in a, a village in central Germany in 1666. And he was the son of a pastor and he was born into a hierarchical world where only certain forms of education could prepare you to do certain work. One of his brothers was sent off to university to be trained to be a pastor like their father. But uh, Johann Peter, for reasons that are not, not entirely known to us, was destined to be a barber surgeon. That meant that he was going to be a craftsman, a Handwerker, as you would say in German, somebody who learns by doing and works with their hands. So by becoming a barber surgeon, he was joining the ranks of goldsmiths and coopers, shoemakers and brewers, uh, professions that required specialized training, but that were in no way connected with the university and certainly connected to being literate, but not on the 
level of somebody who's going to go to university and, and study and learn Latin. He's born into this hierarchical world in early modern Germany, and um, he needs to train to be a barber surgeon. All craftsmen at this period fundamentally go through a period of apprenticeship, and then after that, uh, they have to be journeymen. And that means they have to travel from master to master. And this is simultaneously their employment. This is how they earn their bread. But this is also how they broaden their skill set and become able to be a master craftsman. Craig, that's a fascinating description of Oettinger. And it really helps us to get started on understanding who he was and the world in which he lived. You know, Roberto, what might else we know about this man? Well, I would connect myself directly to what Craig said and highlight that the system, this guild, um, guild system, which organized craftsmanship in early modern Germany, actually organized um, periods of institutionalized precarity for, for these young men who, who had undergone a training, in, a manual training in an apprenticeship and were not yet allowed to become masters and to open their own shop. So they had to, to migrate for years from town to town to get employment at the shop of, um, of a master, in this case of uh, barber surgeon masters. And um, the interesting thing is that we, we know this, uh, this system, uh, Walz or Gesellenwanderschaft, you call it in German, um, but there are very few documents which actually allow you to reconstruct the whole migratory path such a such a journeyman would would do during the years of, of his journeymanship. And the case of this this journal of Johann Peter Oetting is is interesting also because it allows you it does, allows us to see uh, how how far reaching these migrations are i mean he really during 14 years he crisscrosses the whole holy roman empire and the dutch republic and twice he is recruited as a ship surgeon uh, aboard slave ships so it it shows you how 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 tough it was to to find a job in these days and and what what constraints um you had to deal with as a, as a journeyman. Can we uh, get some definitions on the table about what it meant to be a barber surgeon? I, you know, there is some definition inherent in the term itself, but what would he actually have been doing in this profession? It's not something that exists anymore today. <laughs> a barbershop has a, a symbol of a red and white striped pole in front of it that dates back to the era of barber surgeons because <clears throat> a barber surgeon shop could be recognized by the white linen rags that had blood on them from the surgical work that a barber would be doing to someone in the chair uh lancing an abscess cutting off an unwanted growth uh, suturing up a wound these are the kinds of things that barber surgeons did so barber surgeons are the lowest legitimate level of medical care in the old regime in, in the holy roman empire in france wherever you go below them are wandering folk healers faith healers etc cetera, etc cetera. but the first legitimate level is the barber surgeon their duties are in theory strictly restricted to kind of working on the outside of the body uh as i say uh, sewing up wounds setting broken limbs trying to uh improve the appearance of a scar all those kinds of things 
the first thing they do on a daily basis is to cut hair and shave beards. So that's the barber side of it. And it seems like some of them are kind of content doing that. Others want to take it into more of a medical level. Technically, they're not allowed to prescribe any medications or perform anything that would affect the inside of the body. That is the monopoly of the physicians. Physicians are university trained. They've done an uh, uh, a liberal arts curriculum at a university followed by a medical curriculum. They understand Latin. They understand the Galenic humoral theory of the body. I guess everybody in this period understands that in one way or another, but they're, they're, the, they're the physicians. They're the ones that are trained to do that. But barber surgeons are much cheaper than physicians. They're much easier to find, and no one can really enforce the rules that say they can't prescribe medications, particularly because the same medication can be applied topically, which a barber surgeon could do, or internally. And one of the things you see in, our, in, the, in the journal is that Oettinger has a lot of medications on hand. He buys them, he sells them, he tries to make a profit off them, he applies them, he administers them to himself when he goes deaf in one ear. And those are all technically things that a barber surgeon is not allowed to do. Basically, a barber surgeon is a hands-on guy for all of your immediate needs. For the listeners of, of this podcast, the idea of a training system that prepares somebody to do a job, but then enforces on them a period of precarity of unknown length before they can actually ascend to the level of their profession, that might be annoyingly or frighteningly familiar to some of the listeners of this podcast. <laughs> um, and indeed, the journeyman to master transition could never work for all journeymen. There would never be enough master spots to employ all the journeymen, whether they were journeymen goldsmiths or coopers or barber surgeons. So moving from journeyman to being a married head of household, master of a workshop with your own apprentices, just like getting a tenure track job today, that involved a combination of patience, luck, connections, timing, economic rising and falling, economic trends. And so Oettinger is a guy who made it, although it took 14 years as a journeyman. Roberto, what, what is the minimum length of time that someone had to be a journeyman in this period before they could become a master? I'm thinking it was like three years or something like that. Well, uh, I'm, every town had mm -hmm. different uh, rules and actually every guild had right. different mm -hmm. rules. Now, mm -hmm. um, for, the, for the most guilds of barber surgeon in the southwestern part of the Holy Roman Empire had periods of six, six seven years. Uh, but if you do six, seven years of German journeyman migration, this does not mean that you actually get a position. Right as a master. Um, so for Oettinger, it took him 14 years. Mm -hmm. One way of, of becoming a master um, was, of course, when um, a master died, and then you could marry his widow. And uh, this is actually quite common uh, in the... Mm -hmm. in, and we see, actually, that Johann Peter Oettinger, during his journeyman years, several times he does not work in the shops managed by actual masters, but he works for masters' widows and as a journeyman. And then, mm -hmm. of course, maybe he could have had the option of, of, uh, of marrying one of mm -hmm. these master widows and through this marriage becoming a, a master. You know, one of the things I found that was really interesting about the journal is that 
how often or how easy it is to take the term journeyman for granted. But as the diary shows, right, this guy was literally a journeyman. He was circulating throughout the Holy Roman Empire, the Atlantic world for 14 years until, you know, he gets his uh, his Superman cape, I guess, in a sense, you, you might say. I want to turn to the transatlantic slave trade here in just a moment and thinking about Germany's role in that trade. But I do want to touch quickly on that idea that uh, somebody like Ottinger would have married a barber surgeon's widow. What what would have been gained by doing so? What is that a common practice? It sounds like it was. The master with whom he did his apprenticeship in, in the town of Schwäbisch Hall was actually a man who had a journey, a former journeyman who had become master through marrying uh, a master's widow who had already an established barber surgeon job. Now, this the, the widow whom he married was uh, probably around two decades to 20 years older than him. And he was, biographically, he was much uh, much more the age of, of the master's, uh, master widow's um, daughter. During uh, Johann Peter Oettinger's apprenticeship, he, uh, at some points, he, he leaves Schwäbisch Hall and he runs away with, uh, with, his, uh, with his stepdaughter, more or less his age. Um, of course, this is a very interesting thing because it shows us some insights into hidden gender relations in the world of mm -hmm. craftsmanship. On, on an official basis, all these shops, be it uh, a smith shop or uh, a tailor shop or a barber surgeon shop, they are managed by men, by the masters. And officially, the, the women have a purely private role in the, in the family. Now, on a, on a real basis, we know that, that, that these women were heavily involved in, uh, in the work, in the actual work, in the craftsman's work and when the their their husbands died they were able actually to continue to manage the shop but um as the 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 order of the guilds was uh, was uh, was ruled by men they had only the official they had only the right to manage these these shops uh, by employing journeymen mm -hmm. Uh, so and and this of course establishes um, a very particular uh, relationship between these women who have the right to own the shop and the men who, who work for them. Uh, mm -hmm. rela relationships which which let's say um, somehow go against the the normal uh, manly dominated order of the of the old regime in Europe. It strikes me as very similar to what you might see in, you know, colonial Virginia, for instance, where somebody like George Washington marries a wealthy widow to elevate his social standing very quickly through marriage and then thereby acquire for him enormous wealth. I think it's exactly the same thing. And we can imagine in the case of barber surgeon widows and other master craftsmen widows, some of them, I think, didn't probably want to marry some young journeyman and kind of relinquish full authority of the practice over to someone else. So some of them were kind of always looking for the right journeyman to keep on permanently. Others maybe wanted to marry someone and get a head of the household, a male head of the household back in there. Oettinger's with a woman in northern Germany for two years, and it seems almost absolutely clear that she would like him to marry her. 
and stay there. He seems like he's a good father figure to the children of the widow, but in the end, he decides not to. We're not entirely clear on why. So yeah, marriage connections are are crucial for to be able to settle down, increase your social status. As Uttinger is on his journey, he's his journeyman, he's traveling throughout the Holy Roman Empire, eventually he becomes involved with the transatlantic slave trade. And I want to dive into that. But at first, I thought we might look at Germany's role in the trade. I think it's, you know, it's, it's probably safe to say that when we think about the transatlantic slave trade, it's the English or the Spanish or the Portuguese, you know, more Atlantic facing nations that come to mind. But and I confess, I didn't know anything about the Brandenburg companies and Germany's role in, in, in trying to actually participate in this form of commerce. Can you tell us something about Germany's participation as a whole and then maybe something more specific about these Brandenburg companies? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. The German involvement in the transatlantic slave trade has been very neglected by historiography over over time. And even when it has surfaced, it has not really been integrated into the master narrative about German history. Early modern German history is much focused on other topics, Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, Enlightenment, as if the, the world of the colonial possessions in the Americas, as if uh, the world of uh, trade in West Africa was far, w- would have been far away from from the German lands, and this has mainly two reasons. One, of course, is the fact that Germany, as such, did not exist before 1871. Mm-hmm. There was no united German state before that date. But the other reason is also that none of the uh, manifold. German principalities or the German city-states ever possessed colonies in overseas. So it was kind of easy to forget uh, how deep German-speaking societies were actually involved in Atlantic trade and through Atlantic trade in, in the Atlantic slave trade. I would say there were many, many connections between the German lands and uh, and the, the transatlantic slave trade, and they did not follow national lines. So you had, for example, German-speaking merchants investing their capitals in English, French, or Danish slaving ventures. You had German entrepreneurs buying plantations in Dutch Suriname or in on, on Danish um, Caribbean islands. You have manufacturers from Silesia, so a territory what, which at that time was Prussian and is now a part of Poland, uh, which produced linen textiles, which were then sold to, for example, British uh, merchants who then traded them massively to the West African coast or to South America. And of course, you had poor migrant workers like Oettinger, for whom uh, maritime labor, especially maritime labor um, for, for the Dutch, for the Dutch uh, merchant navy, was a, a, a potential work. For, for whom they, it was a job opportunity. So this German involvement in the Atlantic slave trade was predominantly a, a transnational one, I would mm-hmm. say. And it strikes me as we're talking now that one of the things I found really interesting about your book, and I, I will say for the audience out there that you provide a very lengthy introduction, which sets all this up, which I actually learned a lot from. So thank you for, for taking the time to, to write all that out. Is that when we, you know, we talk about the uh, commerce between North America and the Caribbean, for example, and Great Britain or France? We always say, you know, uh, the, uh, the American colonies shipped their goods to Great Britain and then they were re-exported into Europe. And we sort of 
stop tracing the goods after that line they get re-exported to Europe. And I think one of the things that this book shows is how that process plays out and how deep the Atlantic world reaches into a place like the German-speaking world. That was a great that sort of little nugget that I took away that I'm certainly going to use in class sometime, I think, to, to try to flesh out the broader implications of, of what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, when Oettinger is coming back from his second transatlantic voyage, he's coming back from uh, St. Thomas, which at that time was a Danish possession. Now it's part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. He has his own crates of sugar, tobacco, and cotton that he has purchased in St. Thomas in the Caribbean. And he's taking these slave-produced commodities back to Germany back to Emden, the home port, to sell them at a profit. So he is a little part of the triangle trade, not just as a laborer working as a barber surgeon, but also as an investor in it. The commodities don't get back to Emden, neither does Oettinger's ship because it's stopped by a French squadron, burned to the waterline. He and the crew are taken captive. It's quite a story. Uh, but that was Oettinger's plan for sure. And it's interesting that the question you asked, Jim, because, you know, we're all trained to think of history in national categories. You know, we're just mm -hmm. all trained to think of it that way. But as Roberto pointed out, there's enormous German involvement in Atlantic slavery when you lift off those artificial national boundaries. So there's the movement of capital in terms of German investment. Then there's the movement of labor. And it's clear that none of the huge Dutch enterprises of this period, not the huge uh, Dutch East India Company, nor the smaller Dutch West India Company, could ever have functioned without labor from Central Europe. Every kind of labor. And when you look at the, when you look at Oettinger's diary, you can see the the people that he's working with on the ship, he records people he treats medically, he records people who dies. They're from all over the Holy Roman Empire, further from the Atlantic than his birthplace for sure. There are Saxons in there and Silesians, people from Strasbourg, all over the German-speaking world. And that's just kind of one ship and one voyage. So when we, when we lift off kind of the national blinders, um, we see... All this capital and labor moving out of the German-speaking world, principally through the Netherlands. And then we see all these, uh, all, also all these German-produced goods moving out, right? The Germans are producing enormous amounts of linen cloth in this period from Silesia, as Roberto said, and then also from Swabia, you know, the region today that's Baden-Württemberg. And German historians have studied the heck out of the production of this cloth. Some of the best German historians of the 20th century really made their careers by looking at this proto-industrialization. But they didn't really ask, where, where is all this cloth going? So if you're looking at, uh, you know, an enslaved man or woman in the Caribbean in Oettinger's time, the linen rags that are all they have to wear, those could very well have been woven in Southern Germany or in Eastern Germany. George Washington's slaves were wearing linen things that they called Osenbrigs or Osnabrooks there. That's the name of a German linen producing town. It actually gave that article of clothing mm -hmm. its name. So German commodities are also heading across the Atlantic and then sugar and tobacco and, and cotton are coming back the other way. Tell us a little bit about the Brandenburg African Company. So the Brandenburg African Company is founded in 1682 by Frederick, the Prince Elector of Brandenburg, the so-called Great Elector. He was the man who lifted 
the territory of Brandenburg, Prussia out of the devastation after the Thirty Years' War and started to turn it into the powerful, efficient, early modern territory that would eventually take over much of northern and eastern Germany and eventually become the territory around which Germany would be unified in 1871. So these are, these are the Prussians. They're identified in this period by Brandenburg mm -hmm. because that's their more important territory in this period. So we call them Brandenburg Prussians. Later, they become kings of Prussia, and then we refer to them more as Prussians. But the Prince Elector of Brandenburg founds this company, I would say, for a number of reasons. He grew up in the Netherlands for part of his life, and he's very influenced by everything the Dutch are doing because they're the economic leaders of Europe at this time, and they are the most global traders and probably the wealthiest region in Europe at this time. So he wants to imitate everything that they do, wants to improve his infrastructure, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. He can also see just how much money is to be made in the triangle trade, in the Atlantic slave trade. This news has easily reached Berlin, and many of his counselors, and particularly his business counselors, are themselves Dutchmen, so they can tell him firsthand just how much wealth is out there. It's a testament to his determination, if you have kind of a pro-Brandenburg, Prussian, pro-German patriotic view of this, or it's a testament to his greed, if you think about the enslaved human beings who are going to finance this, that Germany has no connection on the triangle trade at all. They have no Atlantic ports. They have no knowledge of West Africa or people in West Africa, and they have no colonies or trading posts in the Atlantic world anywhere. But nonetheless, they launch into the slave trade. And that's the Brandenburg African Company. Like the Royal African Company in England or uh, the Dutch West India Company or the Dutch East India Company, this is a chartered company. So it has a charter officially from the Prince Elector of Brandenburg, giving them the monopoly amongst his Brandenburg subjects to trade with Africa and the New World. Really the Brandenburg subjects trying to do that at that time. It was very different from the Dutch or the English case where there was more trading capacity and greed than the chartered companies could take in. But nonetheless, it is a chartered company with joint stock. The shares of the stock are owned by the prince elector himself, his counselors. The archbishop of Cologne is a shareholder in this slave trading company. And then individuals can also purchase shares sort of at a smaller amount. Brandenburg, Prussia had no direct access to the Atlantic. Their first voyage is set out from a harbor town called Pilau in East Prussia which is so far east in the Baltic now, I'm not even sure exactly where, where it is on the map right now. Roberto, where is Pilau right now? It's not called Pilau any longer. Of course not. <laughs> because course not. Uh, being, uh, being East Prussia, it is now uh, it is not German any longer. It's called Baltisk, and it's part of the, um, the Russian uh, exclave of Kaliningrad. So it's one of the westernmost uh, towns of of russia near near what what used to be called uh, Königsberg, which is now kaliningrad yes, exactly. yeah, yeah 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 so that involves sailing all the way across the baltic around the sound around denmark and then into the atlantic even by their standards that's not profitable and it adds a lot of risk so they make a deal to access another port, little town called Emden. They they get the authority to to base their trading. Yes, they, make, they make an agreement with with this right. independent city state. So this Brandenburg African Company is basically funded with Dutch capital, 
And it's led by Dutch people who know how to trade with Africa. So the the captains of the ships and the uh, personnel, there's a lot of Dutch people involved. They know where to go on the coast of Africa to get their 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 human cargo, and then they sign a treaty with Denmark, with the Kingdom of Denmark, to allow them to build a little trading post on the Danish island of Saint Thomas in the Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. So they really artificially create three points of the triangle trade: Emden bases in West Africa, and then ultimately the, uh, a treaty with the Danes to set up trading in St. Thomas, and that gets them into the triangle trade. And in the 1690s, they're doing a great business. But that's when war breaks out with France, and from that point on, their ships are liable to seizure by the French, which is what happens to Oettinger's ship, and ultimately of all the vessels they ever had under sail as part of the Brandenburg African Company, about half of them were in some way seized or destroyed by the French. So it's really competition geopolitically and on the west coast of Africa that puts the BAC, they transform themselves into the BAAC, the Brandenburg African American Company. So there's a German slave trading company whose official name has the word African American in it. The Brandenburg African-American Company endures until 1717 when the last of its possessions are sold to the Dutch and the treaty with Denmark lapses and the the Brandenburg trading fort in St. Thomas goes into Danish possession. Why does he keep a journal? What, What purpose is it serving for him professionally or personally? Well, I like to say it's sort of like a university transcript. So the guilds organize this system with a with an apprenticeship with a master, followed by a journeyman status where you have to serve under many masters. And then to be elevated to become a master yourself, you have to produce some record of where you served and what you did. And no institution is going to do that for you. So you have to in some way relate to or convince the people in the town where you want to be made a master journeyman that you really have traveled and you really have served in other towns and cities and broadened your skills. We don't know, I think, how many journeymen literally kept a written record. Others may not have traveled as far, been quite as, I think, ambitious might be the word, or adventuresome as Oettinger. So they may have just related you know, by word of mouth, you know, I, you can check with the guy in Heidelberg. I was with him for a year. And then, as you know, I was someplace. But Oettinger traveled so far and wide, he had to write this stuff down. And when he enters the Atlantic world, he's now seeing stuff that, you know, very few people from his own little town would have ever seen firsthand. So I think he wants to record it in a way in even more detail because he knows that he's now really, in terms of labor, not rare to be a German out serving on a Dutch ship or a German slave trading, slave trading company ship. But he knows that when he gets back to central Germany, where he wants to settle down, people are going to be like, where, what, who? So he writes it all down. We've been talking about a expansive geography, I think it might be the term to use. And that's something I really noticed in the journal itself is the way in which Oettinger is orienting himself throughout the landscape and identifying landmarks that helps him sort of make sense of the world that, that he's living in. And, and one of those in particular is the religious houses of worship, uh, also castles and things like that. But religion is a very powerful theme that comes across in the journal. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what his intent is there, what his religious world looks like, and the significance of noting these various places in the journal itself. 
Johann Peter Oettinger is a proud German Lutheran, and that is really the core of his identity. So the contrast Lutheran or Protestant with Roman Catholic is profoundly important to him. And he's not terribly wrapped up in his national identity. He's willing to lie and say he's Dutch instead of German at one point to avoid being thrown in jail. But he definitely hates the French. They are, they are the villains of every part of the story from his first contact with French people, whether it's French people in West Africa, in the Caribbean, as he treks across France after being captured by the French. They are the worst, whether they're in France, at sea, or anywhere else. They, they're just simply not people who can be trusted. I think you're right to say, uh, Jim, that he really orients himself because we have to imagine this young man, he's in his teens when he starts his journey, right? He's on the coast of West Africa. He's only 27 years old. He really seems to be clinging to the things that give him identity. And that, for one thing, is his Protestant heritage. And you know you're Protestant because you're not Catholic. And that's very important for him to set up as kind of a counterpoint. So when he goes to the uh, Portuguese-controlled island of Sao Tome, it's really the extreme catholicness of the island that worries him he imagines there are many more capuchin monks running around on so sao tome than there ever seemed to have been by any other source that we can document from the records there were maybe only two or three there but from oettinger's perspective these bearded capuchins are just everywhere and they're 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 like trying to lure him in and trying to trick him into converting and they they have better medicines and pharmaceuticals than he does so he can't possibly make any money selling them his meager supplies, uh, but ultimately they're Catholic and that's what worries him. So this is, he is an early modern man and his categories of difference and identity are shaped primarily by Christian versus heathen, Christian versus pagan, and then within Christianity, Protestant versus Catholic, and then specifically he is a Lutheran. Yeah, that episode you described with the Catholic priest, looking back on it now, it's almost like he was interpreting it as if he was being tempted by the devil, in a sense. Yeah, and you know, he's in other Catholic territories. I mean, he's in Catholic-controlled cities in, in Germany all the time. He describes them in the German part of his journal. But that doesn't seem to worry him as much. And I think he's like, well, I am fundamentally still at home in a mm -hmm. German-speaking area. Germany at this time is a patchwork of city-states and principalities who are all either officially Roman Catholic, Lutheran, or Reformed Calvinist, we might call it. And he moves pretty freely among those. Some of these cities at this point have churches of more than one confession tolerated. This is after the Thirty Years' War and the Treaty of Westphalia, so some of them have toleration for other religious sects. That doesn't freak him out too much, but when he gets to Sao Tome, he definitely feels like it's a, it's a physically and spiritually dangerous place. Doesn't make any reference in Sao Tome really to what we would consider racial categories of difference. We can talk yeah. about that more later, but that's not what freaks him mm -hmm. out when he's on land in Sao Tome. This is really highly interesting because he notes that some of the priests on Sao Tome, which had, was a Portuguese colony uh, inhabited by, well, Portuguese settlers, a tiny minority, uh, African slaves, but for and foremost by the descendants of enslaved people, so people with a creolized culture, speaking uh, Portuguese creole. And he notes that Many priests in Santo Me are Africans. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could imagine that for for or we had imagined that for early modern person to see black priests would have been something very um, irritating or uh, at least surprising. And in his narrative, as Craig has just said, that the unsettling aspect is not that these these are black priests, but that these are Catholic priests. <laughs> so you really see that the 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 terms of identity alterity um which are relevant for for this early modern uh, migrant for this 17th century german migrant are not so much racialized yet they're he's learning about race mm-hmm. in this in this journey but uh, religion is still uh, more important i would say i really like that that phrase Roberto, that he's learning about race. And that's what I think makes this journal so valuable is that this is not the this is not a journal of an 18th century Atlantic world where racial categories are locked into the minds of most people and they navigate them, they try to cross them, they try to pass between them, but the existence of the categories is pretty clear. Instead, this journal can help us to answer the deeper question of how these racial categories became established and how someone who was born and grew up in a totally ethnically homogenous region of Franconia, south, southwestern, south central mm-hmm. Germany, um, and then traveled in the pretty homogenous world of the Holy Roman Empire, eventually got to the Netherlands, how he understood these racial categories. It's not till his second Atlantic voyage when he's traveling down the coast of West Africa, that he for the first time uses the word white to describe mm-hmm. himself and other Europeans. And he learns that word from the Dutch, who are the, the, the predominant crew, I think, on that ship. So we get to see how these categories are shaped. He, he understands African people as Moors, which for him is some combination of either a connection with Islam or some kind of different appearance, some kind of phenotype of dark skin, or some combination thereof, then he encounters people who are more light-skinned, but clearly Muslim, people who are dark-skinned, but clearly not Muslim, and he's really trying to kind of piece that all together. So we get a view from below of racial formation Mm -hmm. in the Atlantic world, not the slave trader's view or the slave master's view or the enslaved person's view. Well, as he's on Saltomay and he's starting to think about these racial categories because he is now involved in the slave trade. And so how does that happen? How does he become involved in the slave trade? And and uh, I do want to talk about his 1693 voyage in particular, but maybe we can start here with a little bit about a, a background about uh, how he comes to be involved in this process. He is traveling for many years through the Holy Roman Empire before actually making the decision uh, that it would be a good thing to look for for, uh, an employment in Amsterdam, which is the richest, uh, by far the richest city in the central western europe so he travels to to amsterdam and for the first year he works uh, at the barber surgeon shop in amsterdam uh, barber surgeon shop uh, managed by by a german immigrant and you, you have to imagine that 
Amsterdam in the in the 17th century is like a bit like Chicago uh, around 1900. So mm-hmm. it's really a city of immigrants. The, the the Dutch Republic is the thriving, economically thriving region of Europe, and it it just um, pulls labor from from all over the the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, most many inhabitants of Amsterdam are not even born in, in the Dutch Republic. So he comes there, and after being uh, working in Amsterdam for one year, he gets a job offer by the the West India Company, uh, the Dutch West India Company, and does his first uh, transatlantic journey to uh, to Curaçao in the Caribbean and to, to Suriname. Then comes back to to Europe and starts again working for a, in, a, in a barber surgeon shop in the, in the Dutch Republic before then later he gets another job offered this time by by the Brandenburg African company and uh, and does his second and longer uh, transatlantic voyage well tell us about that 1693 voyage then what struck you about that particular voyage as you were going through the process of editing and annotating this manuscript it's a very long voyage which is really um told and described in 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 detail Uh, it's just to give you an idea of the geographical shape of this of this journey uh they they start from from emden so this german town on the border of of the netherlands uh, and they circumnavigate the british isles because it's the war with France, so it would be unsafe to to go through the the channel. Um, so they circumnavigate the, the British Isles, and then they head down, uh, and they have their first stop in in Mauritania, where they anchor at the island of of Arguin, uh, where there is a trading post of the Brandenburg African Company. Then from there they go to the Sierra Leone estuary, and from there on. From the Sierra Leone estuary until uh, modern-day Gabon, they actually they they really navigate along the coast and they they stop several times. It's not just we cannot imagine uh, the journey of a of a slave ship as like a simple triangle. Uh, it's mm-hmm. actually a long voyage along the coast, trading with many different societies, and then once they have their ship cargo, they slave cargo complete they they have one more stop at, at San Tome as we have just uh, discussed where they take on board water and provisions and then they go they do the middle passage to St. Thomas to this Danish colony and then back to to Europe now the the, the fascinating thing and also the challenging thing when studying this journal was that Johann Peter Oettinger, during his journey along the West African coast, he encounters very very different West African societies. Mm-hmm. And of course, he, he provides descriptions of, uh, of cultural aspects, of social aspects, of political aspects, which of course, not every time he, he properly understands, but he tries to, to, to make sense of what he mm-hmm. sees. So it was both understanding Oettinger and also understanding his misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just to give you an idea, he meets in, the, in, in Mauritania, he, gets, he encounters an Arab Berber Emirate, mm-hmm. 
Muslim society ruled uh, by by Arab Berbers with also sub-Saharan uh, groups in inside. Later on the Sierra Leone estuary, he he meets he encounters a society which is basically structured without a state, without the proper state, like a, a segmentary lineage society. In in modern day Ghana, he he encounters small Akan polities, and then further east, uh, and this is probably one of the I would say one of the more more fascinating uh, descriptions. He is admitted at the court of a of a king, the mm-hmm. king of Hueda, uh, a sacred king uh, with a with a with a court with hundreds of of wives in inside the palace and. Of course, there again, he struggles to make sense of what he sees, but the description which he provides are, are fascinating and I think also precious from a from historical point of view because this was a kingdom and I would say um, one of the most important kingdom in this period for the transatlantic slave trade was really uh, the most important exporter of of slaves of the Atlantic world uh, in the late 17th century, and and yet we don't have many sources about the court of this king, and and so the the, the, the description provided by by Johann Peter Oettinger about the material culture about the ceremonial uh, at, at this court is is really a way to get in into this palace society. If I can add to that from the from the perspective uh, as historians working with the 1693 voyage, we we didn't want to make this a long book because we wanted it to be easy to assign it to, as a text in classes in Atlantic history, German history, African history. Um, and we thought, well, you know, we're just going to kind of contextualize Oettinger's voyage, figure out what he's talking about and where he is, and then put this all together. And this is when we discovered that doing transnational history and truly doing Atlantic history is much harder than doing the history of any one country or region. So Roberto and I are like trying to figure out this man is on three continents and we need to contextualize where he is. And, you know, many times we kind of said to ourselves, oh, you know, if only we had a West African a historian of West Africa here to to you know to kind of figure this stuff out for us. But then we said, you know what? The historians of West Africa were not hunting around in an archive in Berlin where they would find this journal in the first place. So mm-hmm. it kind of fell on us to do this. And I have to say, this is by no means the longest book I've ever worked on, written, or edited, but it's certainly the most complex in the amount of contextualization we had to do, linguistic, geographical, cultural, just to figure out what was going on, what Oettinger thought was going on, and then maybe what really was going on. And I think, as Roberto points out, Oettinger is our partner in this, in the sense that he always seems to be trying to make sense of what he is observing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not just sort of bluntly recording what happens with no particular interest or context. He's trying to figure it out. It's not always successful. He doesn't really have a lot of insight or context sometimes, but he's delivering raw material to us. And particularly the, the material about the court of King Agbangla of Hueda, King Agbangla, uh, is, is un, otherwise 
very, very hard to find in other sources on West African history. And it really tells us a lot about this place that was for a brief period there, a couple of decades, really the core of the transatlantic slave trade. You can see this on the transatlantic slave trade database if you look at mm -hmm. the Bight of Benin as the origin point. And you can also see the Brandenburg African Company, Brandenburg African American Company voyages recorded in the database. So you can get a look at the ship Oettinger was on in the database and get the basic contours of his voyage. So as he was your partner in this journey then, and you, he was helping you to make sense of that journey, but also in a sense, helping him figure out what he got wrong or what he misinterpreted. You know, I love those little moments in the footnotes where you say, well, we think he meant this, or, mm -hmm. you know, he, he most likely was misreading or mistranslating yeah. something French. Mm -hmm. How then did he make sense of the difference between freedom and slavery? on the 1693 voyage? Was it something that he just accepted as a part of the early modern world, or did slavery strike him in ways that he did not anticipate? No, it's weird to work on a project with a partner who doesn't care about slavery at all. Mm -hmm. And Ettinger was our partner in this, and he did not care. That doesn't make him a particularly morally a vacant person for the late 17th century, the, the number of people who had uh, a moral basis to contest slavery was pretty much limited to the enslaved people. Mm -hmm. There are millions of them. They did not like slavery. They did not want to be enslaved. They objected to it in every way they could from uh, insurrection to suicide, from uh, escape uh, to marinage. But in the world of European observers of slavery in this time, Oettinger is typical in that for him, it's just an accepted aspect of life that there will be slavery. Exactly. In the late 17th century, in late 17th century European culture, the legitimacy of slavery was almost never challenged. It was just something that pertained to the natural order, which was justified by law and by, by tradition. Now, interestingly, um, there is a, another man from Franconia. Uh, his name was Francis Daniel Pastorius, uh, who, is, who was also born in Franconia, like like Oettinger, and who in, in 1688 um, wrote the first petition, uh, first protest against the enslavement of Africans in Germantown in Pennsylvania. But really, this is a, a rare exception to the predominant silence about yeah. about uh, the legitimacy of uh, of slavery in in these decades it's only later in the 18th century with the with the emergence of of a abolitionist movement that authors writing about the slave trade feel compelled to either criticize the slavery or mm -hmm. to justify it in the 17th century it's just something you you describe without particular emotion. Roberto, you're a better historian of North America than I am because <laughs> I didn't realize that we could link the story of Oettinger and his Franconian, South Central German background to Pastorius, who was, yes, indeed, part of the Germantown movement. And that's also 1688. That's right when Oettinger is out, out and about, uh, which challenged uh, the moral basis of slavery. That's not where our guy is coming from. He doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't endorse it. He doesn't support it. It's just a fact of life that he's drawn into. It could not have bothered him that much because his first transatlantic voyage directly from Amsterdam to Curaçao then puts him on a long 
intra-Caribbean voyage from Curaçao to Suriname, which takes longer than the Middle Passage usually did and costs more enslaved African lives. He's on that voyage and he sees all that suffering and destruction and waste of human life. And when he has an opportunity to go on another transatlantic voyage with the Brandenburg African Company three years later, he, he jumps right on that. Mm -hmm. So it clearly didn't bother him so much that he wanted to stay aloof from it. I was wondering if I could have you read a passage from that 1693 journey, if that would be okay. Sure. You know, we were just talking about he's observing what he's seeing and sort of a, almost a kind of not passive observation. But as you rightly describe, it's not until much later where people start to really question in considerable detail whether or not slavery is right or wrong. Here, he's just mm -hmm. kind of telling us what is. And what I was particularly struck by was the branding episode uh, when, as part of that 1693 voyage, when they uh, begin to acquire their human property and before they load them onto the ship. And so I was wondering if you might read a passage where that's describing that process. Uh, and he's describing where he has to inspect them from head to toe and you know, he's in charge of, of looking at their health. So I thought maybe uh, if we started that, sure. I had to inspect them all mm -hmm. there and then sort of read through that branding not ritual, of course, but stamping of human property and then and talk a little bit about what's going on there. That's a good idea. Let me start one sentence prior to that. Mm -hmm. On our part, no time was wasted. Every day we bought many men, women, boys, and girls, which were brought from the other kingdoms. I had to inspect them all from head to toe. Those who had gray hair on their heads or were missing a tooth or had the morbum gallicum that is syphilis, or some other deficiency, or did not have all 10 fingers or toes, those we did not buy, and they are called magronin. But the others, found to be without defects, had to kneel on the spot. And as 20, 30, 40, 50 or more knelt down all around, the right shoulder of each was uncovered and smeared with a little palm oil, and then branded by the chief factor that is to say, the chief merchant of the ship, with a glowing iron on which stood the letters C-A-B-C, which means Electoral Brandenburg African Company, Kurfürstlich Afrikanisch Brandenburgische Kompanie. These people were then locked up until there were 80 to 100, as many as could be had altogether. Then the next day they were tied together with ropes like horses. And after they began carrying me in my hammock, they were driven ahead of me by a free moor to the coast, which was three hours march away. So that's hard to read as well. It should be right, because we have mm -hmm. a much clearer moral sense than a lot of folks did in the 17th mm -hmm. century. And sometimes it can be hard for historians to leave their work at the office. When you were working on this passage, what was going through your minds? Well, you know, I, I encountered a discussion on the uh, H. France Discussion Network about the question of knowledge of the immorality of the slave trade. And people were kind of jostling back and forth on no one knew this was immoral at the time, et cetera, et cetera. And then someone just kind of effectively ended that discussion by saying the enslaved people knew it was immoral. Mm. They may not have written treatises about it. They may not have explicated it. They may have even have, have perhaps owned a slave in some previous point in their life, but they knew it was wrong on a physical level to begin with, and then undoubtedly on a moral level and a conceptual level as well. So I tried to remind myself that this was a story that had to be contextualized 
both from the European perspective to say men like Pastorius were challenging slavery, but it was a tiny voice in the face of an utterly accepted practice that was clearly endorsed in the Hebrew Bible, Christian scriptures, all sources of authority at that time. But then I was also reminded that for these people, there was undoubtedly objection to slavery and resistance to slavery. And that kind of helped me to try to keep this in a balance as I was, as I was transcribing it and translating it. Reading the journal of, um, I would call him a subaltern perpetrator of the hmm. slave trade. So a, a person who is himself in a very precarious um, condition as an exploited worker, uh, but who actively engages in the enslavement of people and who profits, tries to profit from it. Engaging with, with such a narrative is really like diving into the banality of evil, because hmm. um, as we said, he's not trying to conceal anything. He describes it. And as a barber surgeon on board of the Brandenburg ship, he is responsible to the company, um, to the health of the enslaved. Of course, not for humanitarian reasons, but uh, it's a question of, of accountability. So he has, his job is to make sure that the, the human commodity reaches the other side of the ocean and that it can be sold for, for, for money. And given the fact that he is uh, responsible for the health of the human cargo, he records illnesses and especially he records when somebody dies. Mm. And he um, regularly records the deaths. So the deaths of, of, of mariners, of European mariners, which occur very frequently, and uh, at, at the beginning, he always notes down the name of the person, of the mariners uh, who, who die and who are then um, sent to the, to the sea. Uh, burial at sea, yeah. At least there's a re religious uh, burial in the, in the sea. Now, in, 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 it's significant that when it's um, a Christian European mariner who is buried to the sea, there is a ritual involved. The slaves... These are just bodies. They're just thrown to the sea. Mm -hmm. And he records that the sharks follow. There, is, there are always sharks following the slave ship, waiting for the next body to be thrown into, into the water. And this is very, this is hard, hard um, narratives to, to work on, but it really shows you how far the dehumanization of... Uh, in the perception of another human being can go. Um, and and the, the slave trade was based on that. It was based on, on this understanding that the other, your fellow human being is just a means to, to, to make profit. You know, it reminds us also of the dehumanization of the Europeans because fundamental human emotions like compassion and concern and recognition of shared humanity, they have not ever learned those or they've stripped them away in the process of becoming participants in the slave trade. So it's just a record of, of dehumanization on, on all sides. The dehumanizers of the Africans dehumanize themselves at the same time. But as Roberto was saying, we might as well confront this head on. And because Oettinger does not try to conceal or sugarcoat or apologize for 
Atlantic slavery and the destruction of life, we have his record of it. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.